Okay, so welcome to episode 24 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livingincinema.com and Ryan Adams and me from uh, awardsdaily.com. I just have to start the podcast out by saying that we actually got our first perk for doing this podcast. Actually, I hogged it all to myself being a horrible, horrible person. (laughs) And that was a wonderful gift of two pounds of coffee from Cafe Vita. In fact, I think I'm going to get some for you guys just to send to you so you can taste this coffee. It's, it totally sounds like I'm doing a weird commercial and I've always wanted to do that. Like sound like I was doing it. <laughs> but, <laughs> plug um, a product, plug a, plug a sponsor. It's really nice listener named Rick, who I think lives in Portland. Um, and Rick and Anna Fryle, no relation to the famous actress Anna Fryle, but thank you very much for the delicious coffee. And we're really happy that you like the podcast enough to send us uh, coffee. And, um, I'm a like lifelong coffee obsessive fanatic. Like I plan my coffee arrangements before I ever even plan my trips. You know, like, <laughs> I always have to think in advance, how am I going to br- have all my coffee apparatus for, for camping, for instance, you know, and I have all my coffee apparatus for can because in can or anywhere in Europe, they don't do coffee like they do here. They don't have like bags and bags of it in a coffee maker at home. It's like they drink these little tiny cups of coffee that you get in a restaurant in the morning. So I have to like come prepare to. How do you do that? How do you make it on your own then in the uh, apartment where you stay? Well, um, I. It depends. Like one time I actually had to, I was staying at a bed and breakfast once. And so she would always have it in the morning. But, um, the next year I went, I had to bring, I bought a little hot water thing and I brought some Starbucks instant with me, such mm-hmm. a gross drug addict, but like, so I could just have the cup of coffee and cause I wake up early and I don't always want to get dressed and go down to the restaurant, get coffee and come back. You know, I'd rather just sit and drink coffee and work in the morning. That's what I'd like to do. Mm-hmm. So I would bring my coffee that year. And then, um, last year I actually stayed in an apartment that had a coffee maker. So I just bought coffee and I was able to make it. But this year, um, I'm staying in something that has like a little kitchen and I think Craig is staying in something that has a kitchen. So I think they'll probably have coffee makers there. I hope I'm going to bring my little water thing just in case, but, um, but anyway, just to say that that like coffee is like a, a religion and a way of life, and God forbid you should get stuck without <laughs> means. And so I just wanted to say all of that to say that that Cafe Vita is delicious, delicious, delicious coffee. You feel I feel like it's too good for me actually. <laughs> I'm glad you told us, but this is the first I've heard about it that you got it. So I'm glad you didn't even have to confess that you got it. You could have kept it all to yourself. <laughs> no, I, I told feel- us. You would have never have been the wiser. It's I not appreciate right. you letting us know that we were getting a, got some kind of perk. Sasha, the swag hoarder. Isn't that horrible? I just totally pretended like it all was going to go to me and I got it all. But anyway, it's C A F F E V I T A dot com. Um, but, you know, they apparently have, I don't think that that helps. Are they whole beans or is it ground already? Well, you can get it anyway. I got it ground. Um, mm-hmm. But Rick actually apparently has a uh, a blog, com blog that he does. Um, and it's just like makes you cry because you don't live there type of blog. You know, with these, if you go, yeah, like pies and incredible um, pictures on this, on this uh, Cafe Vita blog. Anyway, it was very cool. Nobody ever gives us any, well, no, that's not true. We do get a lot of great feedback on our 
um, on our podcast. So thank you, listeners, who who tell us how much you like it and how you want us to keep doing it every week. That makes us all makes us feel like it's kind of worth it since it is not the easiest thing to put together every week. The feedback is good, but presents are always better. <laughs> Free coffee, even better. <laughs> <laughs> totally unexpected and like like the nicest like wrapped coffee you could ever want you know like totally deluxe <laughs> nice i like the just the process of making coffee so if i have time sometimes i'm just so in such a hurry or and so lazy in the morning that i just i just will make some instant but i, li- I like the process the ritual of it you know yeah. i either make it with a, a french press um um yeah, yeah. Hot, or also, I've got an old-fashioned percolator, which is like a really retro 1960s thing that actually mm. makes that glug 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 sound when it's percolating. You know, oh, yeah. that's a pretty that makes good, good coffee too. Oh, I love that, and I love um, I loved watching like on the best years of our lives where they would make coffee in those little coffee. You know how they always serve them in pitchers and you know, mm-hmm. yeah, silver pots. They will serve coffee, um, and we always drink it black. <laughs> Back then in those movies. That's the only way to drink it. Is there another way? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I've been a coffee and cream drinker forever. It's a, now that I'm a soy cream drinker, as gross as that is. But I, I go to the coffee place and sometimes. I get stuck behind the people at the cream island. And they're like building their little coffee milkshakes <laughs> with the cream and the sugar. Standing there for like an hour. And I just want a napkin so I can get the hell out of there. And it just pisses me off to no end. If you want a milkshake, go to McDonald's, goddammit. <laughs> Don't you hate having to wait for people in front of you to do stuff? Oh, it's like my pet peeve. You just want them to get out of the way. <laughs> yeah, it turns out I hate most things that involve other people. I can't help it. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Except for people in the Northwest. Rick is from the Northwest. Yeah. I want to give a shout-out to the Northwest. The Northwest knows how to do two things well, coffee and the movies. You'd be surprised at how good... Uh, uh, I don't know about Portland, but um, Seattle is a great town for movies for a city of that size. I think it's because the weather sucks so bad that that warm beverages and staying indoors and watching movies are two great things to do. Isn't Gus Van Zandt from Portland, or am I mistaken about that? Yeah, I think you're right. God, I'd never want to leave probably if I was from there. They kicked me out. (laughs) (laughs) We've had enough of you, Kennedy. Get out of here. (laughs) That's it. Go to love, live in Los Angeles. Yeah. All these ratty people are coming in from California and raising our our property values, so we have to give some people back. So it's your turn. <laughs> so you know what we did? Maybe if if you want to, so we we skipped for some reason. We skipped from 1970 to 1972 because we were in such a hurry to get to The Godfather. Although we're going to do 1973 to, tonight, I guess um, we might at some point go back to 1971 and pick up wh- where we skipped over that year. Yeah, maybe we'll do that. We could, maybe we could just do the 70s over all over again. Too. I was going to say, once we get to 1979, <laughs> let's just go back and start over. What are we going to do when we get out of the 70s? Seriously, let's just strike the 80s from the record. <laughs> it's such a shit Not show. that the 80s, there was like one or two good movies a year in the 80s, but oh. then we'll only be talking about one or two movies per podcast for each year in the 80s. You know, It's not as if there were no good movies in the 80s, but they were just so less frequent. Yeah, I mean, I one of the things I love about doing these is just reading back through the Inside Oscar um, book and reading the history. And uh, I imagine that once the Damien Bona years are over, it's not going to be as interesting anymore. And those will be the years we all lived through. So we'll have mm-hmm. to be able to tell our own our own side of the hideous saga. But 
Um, but as it is, the only real deep in-depth reporting of those years is, is in his or in the you know Inside Oscar. So. Um, and amazing stories that I find reading, and that was one of the fun things about this year, is there's a lot of interesting things that happened in 1973. I used to read each chapter before we would do these, but since you were reading them too, I felt like that I was going to be repeating a lot of the things that you did, and I'd just rather almost rather hear you tell the stories instead of reading them myself. Mm-hmm. And also, I like, I also, in a way, I sort of like to go into the year sometimes cold to try to figure out on my own what the hell happened, instead of having... Some, an expert explained to me. It all makes a lot of sense to hear Damien Bona explain it, but I but I would almost sometimes rather sort it out myself. Right. Well, he and he chooses certain. They choose certain things to focus on that that you nece- wouldn't necessarily focus on. Um, of course, things were so different back then. They really only had one big guild, which was the DGA. They were very important, and they only had um, one film critics group. Um, at that the National time. Society of Film Critics, I guess, right? No, I think it was the New York Film Critics. Okay, right. National Society too. I think they go all the back, to, all the way back to the '30s. But they've oh. always had a sort of a, a rocky, uh, checkered history. They seem to have been invented to be the um, the anti New York film critics. Maybe mm. it's funny because they always do that. Some critics group will suddenly want to break free from. Um, the kind of critics group that honor the same kind of movies that Oscar honors somehow, mm-hmm. like we're the ones that like the real movies kind of thing. Um, and at that time it was, it was, um, as far as I recall, reading back and how they formed the National Society of Film Critics was fil- was formed by these, um, uh, actually I don't think it goes, does it really go back to the thirties? I believe it. I'm, I thought it started I'm just dreaming that. I think that I have, I've looked at the, at the history and I think it goes back pretty far. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it started around with with um, Pauline Kael, if I'm not mistaken, or something. Maybe not. I don't know. Okay. We'll have to look. But anyway, we're not talking about the National Society right now. We're talking about 1973, and um, the the Oscar went to the Sing. But it was an interesting year because um, they had the the five the five films up for Best Picture were The Sting, The Exorcist, Ingmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers. Um, and a touch of class, and Francis Ford Coppola's American Graffiti, and of those, uh, it's, it's yeah, although Coppola produced American Graffiti, that was a Lucas film. Lucas directed right. that, I'm didn't sorry. he? Sorry, George yes. Lucas. Yeah. 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 yeah, and of those, the um, same five directors were honored. So George Roy Hill for The Sting, Ingmar Bergman for Cries and Whispers, Bernardo Bertolucci. Oh no, no. Um, Bertolucci for Last Tango was nominated, but his film wasn't. And William Friedkin for The Exorcist and George Lucas for American Graffiti were all nominated. Um, It was the same year as Serpico, Paper Chase. Um, I'm not sorry. Sorry. Oh, my God. No, you're right. I believe that's right. I know, but I didn't want to say Paper Chase. chase I want to say Paper Moon. (laughs) (laughs) But but you're right anyway because I I know Paper Chase was the same year. I don't yeah. think that's as good a movie, but mm-hmm. um, it was the same year as Serpico, Paper Moon, The Last Detail. Um, it, it was just—it was a great year for for you know movie for great movies, but it was also the year of the way we were, um, which kind of to me speaks to the fact that this year, 1973, is very similar to 2012 in that. We're sort of living through the era of George Clooney um, and Ben Affleck as being more so George Clooney, really. But, um, 
you know, the, the kind of the big alpha male stars. And back then it was Robert Redford and Paul Newman. And they had done uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid together, and then they had reunited for The Sting. And it was such a celebration of the two of those men that win. Yes, the public loved the movie. It made a ton of money. The song was in the public vernacular and continues to be a song people play all the time, The Entertainer. And it seems like the movie won for that as much as it did anything else. But because it was It's so funny popular. because, uh, in a way, um, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid was also famous for its song, that, that yes, Raindrops Keep right. Falling on My Head song, which is so anachronistic I and know. so bizarre that you would have that 60s pop song in a movie about cowboys. Yeah. And, and anyway, so that was my sort of overall take. We can go into depth and more, but my overall take after reading that and after rewatching The Sting mm-hmm. was that. The only reason it really did so well, I think, is because, well, among many reasons, but mainly that it was such a celebration. Robert Redford had made The Way We Were and The Sting in the same year. He was the it guy. Um, at, at the same time, there were so many forces pushing in from the outside, like the Vietnam War and Watergate and, you know, this kind of infiltration of, of you know, Ingmar Bergman, who apparently cries and whispers couldn't get any U.S. distribution and Roger Corman, schlock filmmaker, is the guy who stepped up to buy Cries and Whispers without even seeing it for $75,000. And he turned it around to being Emar Bergman's most profitable movie. Oh, yeah, he made a bundle on it. I mean, it was, a, a, like you said, it was Bergman's most profitable film in America. And I think Corman himself pocketed a cool million dollars or so just on that deal alone. So heading into the Oscar race, the two hot movies were The Exorcist and The Sting. Going by going by the pictures that were nominated, you would think that, and so when you that's what I make the, I used to make the mistake when I would look at past history of the Oscars, I would look at the five nominees, and I would it would almost make sense to me that okay, you really cannot expect The Exorcist, a horror movie, to win Best Picture. So The Sting is as strong as A Touch of Class, and it's pro- and you also Cries and Whispers is not going to win Best Picture. So it can almost make sense when you look at only the five nominees. But as you say, it was such a strong year. When you look at the 10 or 15 movies that weren't even nominated for Best Picture, there are so many, so, so many movies that were better than most of the nominees. Right. That always happens a little bit every year, but not nearly as much as it did in the 70s, when you can't even believe that they overlooked some of the movies that they almost completely ignored. Like which ones? Well, you named a couple of them already. Let me look real quick. Uh, um, um, So there's Mean Streets, Scorsese's first major movie, Mean Streets. Um, Terrence Malick had Badlands. Those movies, I guess because those directors were new and nobody knew who they were at the time, probably no one could conceive of what they would go on to do. So that's a little bit understandable. It's only in retrospect that those movies look so great. So you can almost forgive them for overlooking those. But then there's Don't Look Now Mm. and um, The Long Goodbye, Altman's Long Goodbye. There was Serpico. There's Scenes from a Marriage, another Bergman film. Um, Let's see. When you mentioned Paper Moon... uh, Hal Ashby and Altman, I think, are the two most overlooked and most underappreciated uh, directors of the 1970s. And Hal Ashby that year had The Last Detail, which the studio didn't know what to do with it. Um, they, I, I think that it was Robert Towns' first, um, first original screenplay, The Last Detail was. And he wrote it with Nicholson in mind, and Nicholson was behind getting it made. And when the studio saw it, they were shocked at how many F-words there were in it. You know, that just wasn't done back then. And so I think it was Robert Evans who said, we like the movie well enough, but can you cut like 40 of the lines that have F-word, the F-word, you know, where you say fuck? 
And so Ashby says, you mean you're telling me that with 80 F words, people aren't going to go see it. But if it only has 40 F words, people are going to be okay with that. That makes no sense. If you don't like the F word, you don't like it, period, right? <laughs> and so it's not going to make any difference whether we cut those 40 lines out or not. You're going to ruin the movie. You're going to gut it. And anyway, I think uh, in, in the end, I think Town was nominated for Best Screenplay for that. And uh, Jack Nicholson won Best Actor at the Cannes Film Festival that year for the last detail. But that's right. a movie that was almost completely overlooked. You know? And as he came out of the... the um the Kodak, or Kodak, as he came out of the, the Academy Theater after he failed to win for, um, for the last, for the last detail, detail mm-hmm. he said, you know, I really liked getting that award um, in Cannes, but I was really hoping that, that, you know, our awards would have honored it. He said it was the best thing I've ever done. I don't think I'll ever top that role. Well, you know, I, the quote that I read where Nicholson said that The Last Detail is the best thing he ever did, he actually said that, I believe, in 1988 or even later. So he had wow. already made a, a lot of great movies by then. It wasn't just that he that was the best thing he'd made up until that time because he was still relatively new then. But yeah. even looking back on his whole career, he said that The Last Detail was his favorite movie, his favorite role. Although you can't really begrudge Jack Lemmon winning, um, who you know had deserved to win way you know b- way before that, and just, right, that and was that was a that was a good role. I mean, I like Save the Tiger. I, I like those kinds of movies, those those uh, those uh, uh, character driven films like that. So, so am I going to be the guy that defends the sting then? No, we, we haven't got to <laughs> I'm, the one, I'm the one that's going to have to go for the team on that one. <laughs> no, we I, haven't no, started talking ahead. You about should. It. You really should defend it. And then, As far as movies that didn't deserve to win the Oscar go, I think it's one of the best. It certainly wasn't the best movie for that year, not even close. But uh, to me, it um, I, this is sort of, sort of unexpected for me. I always sort of wrote it off as being... Being what it is, which is a light entertainment, but watching it again this time, I was surprised at how entertaining it really is. And to me, it maybe it's because I come from the other end of it, where I don't really expect anything out of Oscar and never actually mistake it for the actual right. real best picture of the year. That it, to me, it sort of typifies what Oscar is all about, which is often a celebration of Hollywood more than anything else. And this movie is a big slick almost effortless-seeming Hollywood entertainment kind that don't get made anymore. And mm-hmm. they can try to make them, but they just, they don't, they don't seem to work. And I would say that even, even Butch Cassidy, which uh, people love as well, is, is not even close to being as good as The Sting is. I actually can't stand Butch Cassidy. There's parts of it that I really like, but ultimately it's kind of weird and, and annoying. But The Sting just kind of... It goes down so easily that it, it's, and the hard same director. For, it's hard for me to be, yeah, same director, same cast. It, it's, it, but it's hard for me to begrudge this thing, even though it wasn't the best movie, just because it won, I don't really hold it against it. I think it's, uh, yeah. it is what it is, the fine I, entertainment. I had never watched it. I don't think, I can't remember watching it when I was younger from beginning to end. I saw pieces of it, so I didn't really see the whole thing from beginning to end until a couple of years ago, and I enjoyed it. For sure, I, I liked it because, for one thing, the production the production design is impeccable. It looks terrific. It looks so authentic, and there's so there's so much going on in the production design. And I also was struck by the fact when I watched the first thirty or forty five minutes of it again a couple of days ago, just to refresh my memory about it. It was one of the first movies that Hollywood did that was nostalgic, in a way that that the artist is was nostalgic, not only in the subject matter. But in the style that they tried to, they tried to replicate um, 
like the ragtime music. Does Scott Joplin write the music? That? Is it the original Scott music? Yeah, and Marvin yeah. Hamish. Sort of and they music. also tried to do some things like um, the old-fashioned wipes, the wipes and, and irises that they used to do in the movies from the 1930s. Oh, they tried to replicate that a little bit. In the, in the, so it was one of the first movies that was purely looking back to old-style Hollywood and trying to replicate that, and with a lot of respect. They did it with a lot of respect, and it wasn't hokey. Well, the only positive thing I can say about it, I think it's a good movie, good enough, but to me it seems like a more of a celebration of those two actors than anything else. Um, mm-hmm. I, I guess rem- I'm okay with that because yeah, I both of them. That's fine. They were, they were two Hollywood giants, you know, and that was their that was their due, you know. And someday George Clooney's going to get you know the, get a million you know a lot of Oscars in one night, and that'll be his his due for being the guy, you know. And mm-hmm. both those men um, stretch themselves in ways that most actors don't anymore. And you can kind of see Ben Affleck trying to go in that direction a little bit. Like they went from you know, and I suppose you could say people like Kevin Costner and Mel Gibson also following in those footsteps but you know uh, paul newman was was directing back then and and uh, robert redford going from doing movies like the way we were and also doing the staying in the same year you know it's, it's pretty impressive to see an actor stretch that way even a pretty boy matinee idol like he was he was actually a really good actor the only thing i didn't buy in that movie was they tried to pass him off as a guy who couldn't get a date and that was like one of the most unbelievable things I've ever seen in a movie. He's so gorgeous. He could get a girl <laughs> snapping his fingers, you know. The, um, the the Clooney analogy holds up to a point to me, but I don't think Clooney is even in the same ballpark as those guys. If you were to subtract Robert Redford from 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 Paul Newman, what you have left over is still better than Clooney. I, I say that as a person who loves Clooney, but I think that era of that kind of movie star is long gone and it's never going to come back. And, and I think maybe part of what appeals to me about the sting is a, is a nostalgia for that era that doesn't exist yeah. anymore the where, other... where the star was such a big deal and, and did seem actually bigger than life. Absolutely true about them. Those guys, for sure. You still look at them when you see the camera hit Paul Newman's blue eyes, even my daughter who didn't sit down to watch the movie, but she happened to walk by and she just saw Paul Newman and she was just like, wow, look at his eyes. I mean, you know, those guys were gods. I mean, they really were. You, you don't see that same kind of class in a star anymore. Um, but I, I do think if you had to pick one, you, you, would, you could pick Clooney as being someone who's kind of close to that. Um, he certainly stretches himself in different ways that, that most actors don't. But um, maybe maybe Brad Pitt, although bit. Brad Pitt doesn't isn't isn't as involved on the on the producing and actual film. He's more he's more purely an actor. They just all but seem like boys, you know. And, and mm. those Paul Newman and Robert Redford and those guys seem like men. They didn't seem like boys. But one last thing I want to say about the state. Not one last thing since we're devoting a whole podcast to it. But <laughs> you know that was back when. The movie that won Best Picture was the movie that the public had kind of anointed as Best Picture. It wasn't just an insular Hollywood back backslapping like it is now. Um, it has become that because the public has basically been selected out of the process, uh, partly because the public likes shitty movies now. Much- <laughs> 
It's true, they do. I'm glad you pointed that out. I was going to Well, the, at least the public that goes to the movies still. The public yeah. that goes to the movies enough to make them uh, the best, the biggest money makers of the year, they're kids. And so they have bad taste because they haven't grown up yet. Right. This past year was the first year I've seen in a long time where a movie that the public really was behind, which was Lincoln, didn't have a chance to win Best Picture. That was unusual. Um, back in the 70s, a movie like that would have won because um, I remember being a kid and, and seeing The Sting. And I even called up my best friend just to make sure. And she was like, yeah, we loved that movie. We used to dress up in those outfits and, ta- and tap dance to that song, um, The Entertainer. It was like one of the first songs we learned how to tap dance to. <laughs> we took tap mm-hmm. dancing lessons. And we loved it. You know, Even though it was a total sausage fest and there's only like one woman in the mm-hmm. movie, we still got into it. And she's got little, uh, what were those, the pasties on her, on her nipples? Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that was Robert Kirkland? Redford's girlfriend who, who promptly dumps him and you never see her again. That's Sally I don't Kirkland. Think in the rest of the movie. But, you know, that's one thing I noticed about that movie. Even a movie that was, I suppose, that was rated PG-13 back then or rated, I don't know what the ratings were, whether there was PG-13 yet or whether they were rated M for mature or whatever. But it was pretty, pretty racy for a movie that was a family movie. It also because had violence. Adults were expected to go to movies, and they didn't mm. pander to thirteen-year-olds back then. Exactly. Right. Thank you, God. That's... But you wouldn't see a, a, a girl dancing for five minutes in a movie with nothing but really just pasties on her nipples in, in a movie that 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 it was the biggest money-making movie of the year anymore. You just don't see that. Not like no. she did. No. Well, everything was different than like Craig says. It wasn't. It wasn't geared toward uh, um, children. Like, look at The Exorcist. For God's sake, you couldn't make that movie today. Oh no! So many things about it. They would, they would, it would be nixed before. It, they would, they would, they would be uh, horrified to think the studio would be horrified to think that anybody would even suggest it. The stuff of the crucifix and all that. No way. <laughs> I got one. I mean, in the have, language. You have to laugh when you think about The Exorcist. Um, of course, at that time, William Friedkin was, you know, basically God. He was considered one of the top. Actually, a lot of those big time arrogant directors. Uh, we're in the, in the mix that year because you had you had well you had um, Coppola with well you had you had sorry you had George Lucas about to hit it big with Star Wars but this was his early and everybody knew that Coppola was behind American Graffiti there was probably that was no secret in Hollywood that Coppola was behind American Graffiti but it was really hard to get made and it it was one of those surprise success stories because it ended up making a ton of money and the studio didn't want to bank on it mm-hmm. and. You know, that really made his career, um, George Lucas. But, I mean, you know, they were arrogant directors. And you also had Paper Moon, Peter Bogdanovich, which was totally robbed of a nomination. Should have been nominated for Best Picture, for sure. That was a great movie. Mm-hmm. Um, how a touch of class got in over Paper Moon is, a, is a, can only be explained by people turning away from Bogdanovich, possibly after he had that affair with Sybil Shepard, you know? Touch of Class benefits a little bit from being better than its genre. I think it it sort of gets the um, the uh, I hate to even say it because I've been crapping on this movie for six months, but it it, it gets the uh, Silver Linings Playbook vote because it's a it's better than typical romantic comedy, and it's so it's much better than good. Silver. Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> so much better than Silver Linings. Let's just go ahead yeah. and say that. But go ahead, and, I, you know, I didn't mean but to interrupt. It's easily you. the odd man out of the nominees for me. The other big movie that year that was really, really ignored was that we're ignoring so far um, and that the Oscar mostly ignored was The Last Tango in Paris. Um, Except for, wait, I'm sorry, excuse me. I have to cut that out. It was not ignored because he got a director nomination. (laughs) (laughs) And you got a Best Actor nomination. 
<laughs> right. Sorry. And we know what you meant. It was ignored for Best Picture because, you know, you would think that if they were going to nominate a, a, a foreign film for Best Picture, that they would have nominated Last Tango instead of Cries and Whispers because well, Last I... Tango was such a phenomenon. Yeah, In Last I... Tango, I think it was like the second or third biggest money-making movie of the year. I highlighted a few um, passages from the book that I wanted to read um, just because I think they're so entertaining. And rather than retell the story, I thought I'd just read it. If you guys want me to, I will. Sure. Please, go for it. Okay. Um, Cries and Whispers won five Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. Last Tango in Paris managed only two for Marlon Brando and Bertolucci. When an interviewer asked Best Director nominee Ingmar Bergman what he thought of Last Tango, the Swede replied, I don't think it's really about a middle-aged man and young girl, but about homosexuals. As it is now, it makes no sense as a film. But if you think about it in those terms, it becomes interesting. Bertolucci responded, I accept all interpretations of my films. I'm not sure what my film says. <laughs> um, Brando's best actor competition came from Jack Lemmon, Jack Nicholson, Al Pacino, and Robert Redford, nominated for The Sting. Redford's leading lady from The Way We Were, Barbara Streisand, was in the best actress race with Marsha Mason, Ellen Burstyn, Glenda Jackson, and Joanne Woodward, who didn't like the course the Oscar race had taken. The Oscars, the Oscar has become a political gesture or a business gesture, she said. People tell you it adds $5 million to a film's gross, and I believe it, but that's not what Oscar is for. Despite her opinions, Woodward made plans to attend the ceremony, hoping the Academy would imitate the New York film critics, which gave her Best Actress. The Best Picture Oscar was between two American entries, The Exorcist and The Sting, both with ten nominations. American Graffiti with five was a dark horse, but surprise entry, A Touch of Class, um, also with five but no director nomination, didn't have a chance. The worst Best Picture nomination scribbled Chicago Today's Mary Noblock, a nostalgic trip for a Hollywood crowd made by a 30-year veteran in an old studio star system way. When Robert De Niro didn't win Best Supporting Actor nomination, a New York trade vet complained to Variety, it's a New York picture, they hate us out there. Instead of De Niro, the actress branch nominated his Bang the Drum Slowly co-star, Vincent Cadena. The other nominees were Jack Guilford and Save the Tiger, Randy Quaid in The Last Detail, and two neophytes, playwright Jason Miller in The Exorcist, and acting teacher John Hausman in The Paper Chase. Um, in Hollywood, everyone was talking about the Best Supporting Actress nominations. Both Linda Blair and Tatum O'Neill, whom Paramount promoted for Best Actress, were in the contest. O'Neill was competing with her co-star Madeline Kahn, prompting Peter Bogdanovich to grouse, I don't understand how Madeline Kahn, who's on screen for maybe 18 minutes, can be up against Tatum, who's in 100 of 103 minutes of the film. Vincent Canby thought it was unfair for the Moppets to be vying against his favorite 63-year-old Sylvia Sidney for Summer Wishes, Winter Dreams. How can Sylvia Sidney compete with the souped-up electronics and editing that went into Miss Blair's performance and with the preconditioned responses that were elicited by Miss O'Neill? One who was happy with the nominations was American Graffiti's Candy Clark, who borrowed 2000 from her roommate, Jeff Bridges, to buy herself ads in Daily Variety. She was the only member of the movie's ensemble cast to be nominated. An anonymous Woody Allen fan also ran an ad in Daily Variety. Congratulations to the Academy for turning its back on talent and artistry once again by ignoring Woody Allen and his superb film Sleeper and the Academy Award nominations. Charlie Chaplin and the Marx Brothers never got any Oscars for their performances either. Doesn't anyone out there like to laugh? <laughs> so I read the, that because I'm so startled sometimes to see how so many of the same complaints 
And so many of the same stories and th- themes that ran through these earlier Oscars, you know, are alive today. And many people think that, you know, when we say them, we're saying them for the first time, when in fact this stuff has been going on forever, you know. Can I just say what an idiot Vincent Kennedy is in the New York Times? <laughs> Everything that came out of his mouth that you read is just absolutely, it's like something you would hear somebody say on Twitter. <laughs> It's unbelievable to think that he was a New York Times film critic. To say that, that Tatum O'Neill was just parroting things that she was told to say, it sounds so much like what we heard about Kavajnavay Wallace. Doesn't you know, it, though? For, That's exactly what it reminded me of, too. People saying, oh, she just didn't have the talent. She was positioned by... And she director. was coached and told, and just and they just used the best takes and all that kind of stuff. But that's bullshit, you know. You, you can't just put any kid in front of a camera and have them have that have that result. Yeah, and what a shame to take away from um, her lasting performance with that sort of snark. Right. Yeah. But. Uh... But you're so right. I mean, it is true that the, the, we think that these things that that, that the. Uh, that the uh, mentality has gone downhill over the years, but the mentality has always been pretty middle brow. For when people try to when people try to sum up what they think is happening in the moment, they're looking at the at the year when they're in the middle of it. They really have no perspective at all about how things how how movies going to be viewed twenty or even ten years in the future. Right, and the big deal. I mean, and a lot of people complain about how fans will create for your consideration ads, or they advocate on blogs. When you had that guy taking out an ad in Variety, you know, the, mm-hmm. every time I read something like that, or or Candy Clark buying her own for your consideration ads when um, when uh, what's her name, Melissa Leo, was was criticized for for the very same thing. It's just it's funny how cyclical it can be, and it always and out and out did the same thing this year. Right. And it always reminds me of these Academy members. So many of them, like Jeff Bridges, have lived through these scenarios. You know, they've seen it all, mm-hmm. a lot of them. So all the stuff that we freak out about is totally old hat to them. What stuck out for me like a weird sort of thumb from what you just read was hearing New York complaining about not getting any respect from Los Angeles. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah. How things have turned, it's the other way around. The shoe is on the other foot now, or the New York cool kids are always dumping on Los Angeles. It's true. Back then, they were bitching and moaning because L.A. just didn't think they raided. Right, I know. That's just so funny. It's- I think for a while, though, maybe the, 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 the Coen brothers suffered from the same thing. They were, they were considered, uh, for some reason, they were, they were East Coast, even though they weren't from the East Coast, they were considered East Coast filmmakers. And, and so that's that's why it took them so long to get uh, the academy respect. I think so. That also lingered for quite a while, even though, like you said, it has the, turned and changed a little bit now recently. They used to care more about homegrown products, um, and you know, like the one thing that's great about the Sting is you can totally see it's a studio lot. It's filmed on a mm-hmm. studio lot, mm-hmm. and when they're running around the streets, I mean, I think it must be what Universal is it Universal's back lot or is it um, Warner Brothers? It's one of those two, but. Um, it's just funny, like, you know, that's what they did back then. And, and for, uh-huh. for many, many, many decades prior, all the way back to the beginning of the Oscars. That's why it was so shocking to see movies like The King's Speech and The Artist win, because they were so outside the Hollywood system. They were so much um, not a homegrown product. And it was like they were honoring stuff that was outside of our... Um, 
you know, our little garden here in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and wasn't wasn't the Academy technically formed as a trade organization back in the day to promote Hollywood product, basically? Yeah. I mean, isn't that where it came from? That's exactly right. Yeah, it was to promote the movies and the stars, mainly the stars. And it's it's always been kind of controlled by... It used to be controlled by the studios. Now it's not so much controlled by the studios as it is by the publicists and by the stars, the celebrities. Um, but but back then it was all about the five families, you know, Warner, Universal. <laughs> yeah. the five and families. the studios are not, the studios have a more of an international profile, especially some of the independent studios, like the Weinsteins, have uh, have an international um, uh Aura about them more than just a strictly L.A. Um, company. Right. Well, he, Harvey Weinstein, is one of the smartest Oscar guys because he knows them the best. He doesn't expect them to be anything else. Mm-hmm. He's, he's like the greatest fuck they ever had because he knows them inside and out. He knows what they like. He knows what they want. <laughs> he gives them what they want. He gives them exactly what they want. And he knows that it doesn't matter as much that that's a homegrown product. You know, um, I was grousing about that for a whole year. It didn't make a damn bit of difference. You know, it's they, they like the movie that they like, period. Before we, while we uh, to bouncing off of your uh, remark about the fact that the more things change, the more they stay the same. It's really bothered me the past couple of weeks to hear about all the flack that Lynn Ramsey is getting for not for deciding that she didn't want to, for whatever reason, we don't know yet, but she decided not to make Jane Got a Gun uh, and didn't show up on set. And so people are calling her hysterical and, and you know, it's just something an emotional woman would do. And, and she was crying in the bathroom and all this, all these really demeaning things that they're saying about her because she's a woman. But in 1973, we have The Long Goodbye and we have The Last Detail, two made by Altman and Ashby, who who tried to do everything they could outside the studio system. And when the when studios saw the first couple of days of, of dailies from The Long Goodbye, they got word to Altman that they weren't happy with it. He's going to have to change the style because it wasn't what they wanted. And so for two or three days, Altman didn't show up. He disappeared. Nobody could even find him. Nobody could even get in touch with him or what had happened to him. When I finally did track him down, he said, when the studio starts liking my dailies, I'll come back. <laughs> And for the last detail, um, similar situation, um, uh, Hal Ashby was was refusing to make the changes to the script and to the to the final editing process that the studio wanted to make. And they said, well, look, you know, we'll just come and get the film. We'll take it away from you. And but what they had forgotten, Paramount, when they approached Hal Ashby to make Harold and Maude and to make the last detail, they wanted to know if he wanted uh, an office, to have his offices on the Paramount lot. And he didn't want to do that. He wanted to have a house. He wanted to, to live and work out of a house. So they got him a house on, I believe it was Appian Way. Is that a street? Appian yeah, Way? Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. I think that Appian Way was, the, at the time, it was where Joni Mitchell lived and Steppenwolf and, and uh, the Mamas and the Papas. And every, all, the, all the rock stars lived on Appian Way. And so uh, they set out Hal Ashby up in a house, a Spanish villa, and he had editing rooms there and everything. And when they told him they were going to come and get the movie, he said, you might try, but I've got the keys to the house. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so how are you going to get it? Because that's where it's being edited, and it's in my house, and you can't get in unless it's breaking and entering. And so, and so, he the directors could have pulled things like that back then. And the stories have come down through through over the years. They're legends. They're rebels. They're mavericks. You know, uh, right? That's and, right. But, that when they do stuff like that, people respect them. Um, 
I I guess the internet makes makes sexism you know so clearly defined at the surface more so than I've ever seen it in, in my life. People like have been making excuses for um, for Michael Fassbender for pulling out two or three weeks before Randy did. He doesn't get nearly the and he, when he pulled out that that was really the that really damaged the movie a lot and financially and structurally because they had to scramble then to try to find ways to recast the roles and people started they started swapping roles and everything else and so she probably saw that it was coming apart at the seams but he doesn't get blamed for it it's her who gets blamed right and jude law also dropped out right mm -hmm. you know so does, does anybody think for a second that maybe all of these leadings are somehow related maybe it's all because of the same person that everybody's bailing and and it's just absurd that one person is being made out to be a jerk for it and, and it aren't. Right. And I, right. Tr I trust her. I trust her that she knows what she's doing in terms of she wouldn't, you know, they weren't going to give her final cut. And it sounded to me like they really had a specific way they wanted to, to take the movie. And I will bet you anything that those people, that Fassbender, Jude Law, and Lynn Ramsey did not want to make a movie that was going in that direction. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So... I hope it doesn't ruin her quote-unquote career. I hope people aren't that stupid. Well, I mean, I do think you're right when you say, when you mention the Internet, probably when these things happened with Altman and Hal Ashby, probably only a handful of people on the inside really knew this was happening. When this thing happens with Lynn Ramsey, um, two million people know about it on Twitter, and they talk about it, and they won't let go of it. And that didn't happen back then. Things like that could happen with, with directors, and it could, they could keep a lid on it, and it wouldn't get out into the public, and it wouldn't cause so much um, widespread turmoil. And also probably it's worth mentioning that probably it did hurt Hal Ashby's career in the long run because he was he, he got a reputation for being very difficult. Because he, it's not the first time he pulled something like that. I'm actually surprised that at that point in his career that he did pull that. It doesn't surprise me with Altman because he had a major box office hit in MASH under his belt at that point, so he had some stones to throw around. But Ashby, you know, he was a occult filmmaker. He wasn't he wasn't Mr. Big Shot. And to, to push back against the studio at that point when the studio still had some power back then, pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know how he got away with it either, except for the fact that maybe because both The Last Detail and Harold and Maude were both made on a shoestring budget. They were made for just a million and a half dollars or something. I think he had to, I think it originally The Last Detail had been budgeted for $800,000 or something. You can believe that. And so they didn't really have a lot. They weren't, they didn't have a lot at stake if you wanted to play games like that. But and then, of course, eventually, I think um, did he did Hal Ashby win Best Director for Coming Home? No, he didn't. He never won Best Director. His main is a punishment. But but eventually, Coming Home um, was nominated for Best Picture, and it won Best Actor and Best Actress for Jane Fonda and John Voight. Right? If she doesn't have kids or whatever, it's still it's still about time spent. It's still about time investment. You know, and and wanting to own your own time and not have your name attached to something that's shitty. That's and not wanting to work in an environment that's begging to have a disaster come out of it. Right. She, she doesn't strike me as the kind of filmmaker who makes movies um, because she needs to satisfy anybody but herself. You know, it's not as if right. she chooses projects that she knows are going to be, you know, commercially, you know, <laughs> all that, all that, all that uh, viable really even, you know, they're difficult movies that she makes and she doesn't mind doing that. And also, she's no, she's no David O. Russell who's just going to do something because people will like it. Well, and right. the thing is, is if you're a woman, you can't you can't be demanding like that. 
like a David O. Russell could on set. You mm-hmm. know, you can't say, no way, man, I'm getting Final Cut. Mm-hmm. Back the fuck off, you know? Mm-hmm. You, you can't because people just laugh at you. <laughs> so for m- most of the time, and unless you're somebody who has a lot of power in Hollywood, and I can't think of a single female that does. I think Hal Ashby was really a very charismatic person. I think he was really well-liked personally because he was he was just a... He was like... He was a, he was an he was an aging hippie, you know. He had the long hair and 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 everything. And he was he, even though he was really too old to be a hippie, he he had that 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 attitude about him. And I think that 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 a lot of people thought he was pretty cool of him to be like that and to be such to be so cantankerous, you know. And also he had I think he I think he won an Oscar for film editing for the In the Heat of the Night. So it's not as if he was a nobody. He, for for editing for film editing he was a film editor before he was a director so well, he was um he was different but i think people people respected his talent because they looked at the movies that he made they looked at Harold and Maude and they looked at the last detail which you know was a big hit at Cannes and they looked at Harold and Maude which became a cult classic almost immediately you know on college campuses they knew he had something they didn't want to alienate him but they it just was didn't also, know how to handle him it was the era of the of counterculture and and mm-hmm. you know being sub- being subversive against the government and protesting, you know, this is, this is the era of protesting Vietnam and getting thrown in jail for that. Uh-huh. And it was also the seventies was really the last era where Oscars, the Oscars and film were really heavily influenced um, by the critical reception um, too. It wasn't that like the sting still won. It wasn't like, you know, the movie had to be really, really art, artful to win particularly, but the forces were there very, very strongly. And what what's going to happen in the next couple of years as we move through the 70s, you're going to see the shift between once the blockbuster came in, once Star Wars and Jaws really shifted the landscape of how we see movies. That was one of the major shifts was with those two movies. And suddenly it became, as we head into the 80s, where the 80s was all about, remember the 80s, the yuppies and making money mm. and, you know, being a successful business person and having the $100 million opener, you know, the $100 million baby, not opener, maybe not yet, but um, movies that made $100 million was a big deal after Jaws and, and Star Wars. and. Mm-hmm. And after The Godfather and The Exorcist, really, they they really started it. They really, they, even though they were a different class of movie altogether, because they weren't they weren't calculated to appeal to the youth audience. Those were the first movies that, when the when the studios finally thought, "Oh my God, you mean we can make a hundred million dollars on a movie? This has never happened before." Well, when they started to get to Jaws and Star Wars and stuff, it became more like 200, 300 million, because right. they always made a lot of money, like Gone with the Wind and Sound of Music and you know, Casablanca and, you know, the Oscars were always driven by box office. They were, Mm. they were driven by box office and critical acclaim kind of at the same time. But the sixties and seventies, it really was much more about, you know, do, are we rewarding a great film, you know, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just a successful film after the seventies, it, it really did shift. And the thing, the difference is, is that I mean, obviously there have been huge money makers throughout history, but in the old days, for a movie to make a crap load of money, it had to have longevity because it wasn't released on three thousand screens on opening weekend. It played and played and played and played, and people went to it and again and again and again, and there was word of mouth. So a movie had to actually be great in order to make that kind of money. Oftentimes, nowadays, a movie makes money based on 
its opening weekend, which has nothing to do with whether it's good or not. It has to do with how well it was marketed, and that's it. So mm-hmm. I think that's a huge dividing line between the in the quality of the movies. Another thing, too, possibly, is but when you have a Gone with the Wind or you have um, even a Sound of Music or The Godfather, you, you try to think, okay, that, that worked out well. Let's do that again. You cannot replicate those movies. Those movies are one-of-a-kind, unique things. But once, you started, once, once people started understanding what the formula for a summer blockbuster was, right. it was a formula. They could do that again and again and again, and it became something that they knew how to replicate because they knew the, the components that went together to attract the audience that they wanted. Right, and that's... And at the same time, the studios are being increasingly run by bean counters instead of people who actually like movies. And so... A formula like that is appealing to them because it's something that they can replicate replicate on a balance sheet and there's less risk involved. Which is what Robert Altman's The Player is really about. It's really about the new Hollywood, the way it changed. It's a really, you know, startlingly real film, I think, in, in, in how it depicts Hollywood and, and especially that, the formula going from... Um, what that guy wanted to make, the movie he wanted to make, to what it ends up being, right. um, to what it turns into by the end. And, and you know, after the 70s, you know, they, they, they were always about the star, but into the 80s, we had a whole different level of star. We had Tom Cruise and Julia Roberts and Tom Hanks and these, like, hardcore mm-hmm. $100 million stars. That paradigm has basically gone now like we then there was another shift where now there there are no more huge stars to that degree i mean the closest you can really get is like leonardo dicaprio i guess is maybe still considered that but maybe angelina jolie maybe angelina but a lot of them have lost their cred like tom cruise um tom hanks they they lost their cred because they actually made some failures yeah and they're getting old and and the audiences are getting younger and younger Mm -hmm. yeah they, the, so. they, there's no, there's really no. You can't justify giving someone a twenty-five million dollars salary anymore if they're not going to deliver the, the audience for right. that. And that's what it was about in the '80s. It was about Julia Roberts made Pretty Woman, and she's commanding twenty million dollars per movie mm-hmm. as the highest-paid actress. You know, that was the story. And it, how it, it seemed to affect the Oscar race was. On the one hand, the Oscars have always wanted to rebel against that, the blockbuster. They've always had a grudge against it. And, in fact, the Star Wars year, Annie Hall won Best Picture. And Hurt Locker won up against Avatar. So that thread continues um, through the Oscars. But I think that the box office, the need for high box office, um, I don't know, it sort of seemed to somehow shift the way... Um, the Academy started to reward best pictures. I mean, how else do you explain the huge drop from the 70s quality of films to the 80s and then the and 90s? I, actually, it's, 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 it's uh, not even all the way through the 70s. It started to fade and started to fall apart before the 70s were even over. I have a... I, I know I talk a lot about the language in movies, how, the, how like, MASH was the first movie to use the F word, and then The Last Detail had, like, 80 F words, and then I talk about the sexuality of movies in the early 70s. What happened in 1968 is the production code that Hollywood had been abiding by for four decades uh, was abolished. They were finally able in 1968 and 69 to start making movies 
um, where they could make movies like Midnight Cowboy, where they could have an X-rated movie be nominated for Best Picture. And that worked out pretty well for four or five years until I think um, there was a lot of backlash against that across the country, especially in the middle part of the country. And there was a, there was a, a lot of laws started springing up about community standards and obscenity laws, and studios didn't want to have to deal with that, so they started taming the movies down again. So there was that period between 1968 and, say, 1976 or so, when movies were a lot more free with sexuality and language than they had ever been before, and I think that gave filmmakers um, a lot of feeling of, of uh, freedom, um, a creative freedom also. Um, it's true. That's, that's a really good way to look at it, and I know I'm not smart enough to know about how the independence interrupted the big studio systems, but I do know that in the 80s was really when Miramax burst through and when there were... Um, you know, there were actually independents starting to grow. And and the independents really, again, shifted the Oscar race to where, for a while there, it was only about the independent movies. And then it, it has lately, in the last decade, the last few years, it's shifted back to the major studios. But for a while there, it was controlled by the little the little studios of the big studios, like Fox Searchlight and Sony Picture Classics and Focus Features, you know. They were built, those little studios were built to kind of match the Miramax model of like the, the smaller independent studios making the kind of movies that Oscar voters can, can vote for and that critics like. As the public continues to be drawn more toward these giant, you know, sequels and formula movies, you know, the Oscar race is still trying to focus on the smaller movies, the festival circuit, the independent films, because that's really the only place they have to go. They don't have anywhere else to go. That's another thing, too. Another thing is there were two different cycles, I guess, like that. But we've talked about before uh, when Easy Rider was made for a shoestring and then made, you know, became a huge hit with the youth market. The studios looked at that and they thought, we want to be able to do that. We want to tap into the, the, the this kind of filmmaking. So we, so they, they that's why they wanted to absorb uh, Coppola and Bogdanovich and Friedkin into the director's company for Paramount because they wanted the independent mentality, but they wanted to keep it under their thumb. They wanted to absorb it. Even in even in the early 70s, they went through a period when they tried to do that. But that's, that's the thing. You cannot take an independent thing and make it part of a conglomerate and expect it to maintain its independent characteristics. Right. Right. And we're, but we're still not out of the 70s yet, so we can, we can romanticize it. When I look at Oscar history, I always think of, like, this one group of baby boomers. I think, you know, in the 70s they were cool and they had balls and they liked better movies. And then, you know, the 80s came along and they were starting to, you know, um, grow older and losing their nerve a little bit. And, and now what they are is they're like fading into their twilight years and they only really like, you know, movies that aren't too loud. And <laughs> but you know, I do, I do think that part, it's not just because they liked better movies in the seventies, because we've said this over and over, they made better movies. There were movies made in the seventies that could not be made today right, in like the same the, way. Like the and sting, so they, the sting could never, if they made the sting today, it would be like Skyfall. Like it wouldn't <laughs> be the sting. It would have to be, they it would never turn on, on you know a clever idea it would have to turn on a clever idea plus a lot of special effects and you know fancy footwork and uh you know what i mean like it's just not bells and whistles i mean not fancy footwork but it's just not um it wouldn't be able to just exist on its own but but argo if you had to find a movie that's like the sting argo is very similar in tone i thought to the sting it's very much a throwback 
What's similar about them, and what we've talked about this so, so many times before, too, is the way that the ending is wrapped up so tidily. Mm. The movies that, that don't have tidy endings have always had trouble um, 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 being popular with the audiences, and also they don't make the, they don't make the movie they don't make the money because they audience like to leave the theater feeling like it's all wrapped up, everything is going to be okay. Right, and um, that's right. But the Sting, like Argo, it, it stands out in the in the decade of the seventies, as far as I can tell, for being the the one movie really like that, that really really wraps up tidily. And and then similarly to the to Argo, it's sort of like the Sting is about good bad guys it's about good con men con men who are really good and mm-hmm. and argo's about cia guys who are really good you know mm. they're bad good guys and they're they're you know exerting they're they're oh, i cannot think today they are you know doing good deeds and justice is done at their hands even if they have to break the rules to do it and good triumphs in the end, Crude and good. the good, the good guys, the guys who you're rooting for, uh, walk away uh, clean. Right. And, and the, movie, the people were more accepting of the fact that movies could end really tragically in the nineteen early 1970s. They could end tragically, and you could still realize that that was a great movie. Right, right. But the sting isn't that. It's, it's a totally no. soothing experience. It's also similar to Argo in that there aren't really any women characters. It's all men. There are a lot of funny one-liners. There are a lot of veterans and, you know, a really on-fire young, you know, star in the lead. Mm-hmm. Um, Argo didn't have, didn't seep into the public consciousness like The Sting did. The Sting was every was, was such a big movie at the time. You know, it really was. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody loved it. So for it to win, it made sense, you know, because back then, Best Picture was Best Picture for everybody. It wasn't just best picture within our little insular group. Yeah. Well, I think the sting appealed to many different age groups. I think that teenagers could enjoy the sting. You've said that they that you talked to people who really loved it when they were kids. We've we've heard we've talked we've heard readers on the site say that they're that they grew up loving the sting and their and that and their parents loved it too. So it's, it could be a favorite across generations. Um, I'm not so sure that a lot of movies like that uh, do that anymore. Right. It, it doesn't. To me, rewatching it, it doesn't hold up as well as some other movies, you know, that, that didn't even win Best Picture of the same era. But, yeah. um, but it's, it's fine. I mean, it's not a bad movie at all to win. It's, it's a little yeah. odd that it, it was the popular movie at such a controversial time in our history. But um, I have heard this is another piece of trivia. Maybe, maybe I, I don't know where I read it. It could have been in the Damien Bona book. Do, have you, I couldn't find the clip anyplace. But, you know, David Ward wrote the screenplay for The Sting. And I am pretty sure that this is a fact that when he won his Oscar and when he accepted his Oscar after his little brief acceptance speech, he tapped his nose as if I've just conned you. Oh, <laughs> And that was quite a scandal at the time because it was so obvious what he was saying, you know, that he made that gesture after he walked, after he got his Oscar. It's like, I pulled one over on you guys. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> and uh, well, you know, another thing that struck me, and a clip that I did find that I sent to you too, and I'll, I'll link to it on the site when we, when we post the podcast, is when Elizabeth Taylor read the nominees for, um, for Best Picture. I'm struck by the fact that it doesn't seem like that she... 
I don't know how to say this. I'm going to get so much hell for saying this. I mean, because I love and adore Elizabeth Taylor. She's she's fantastic. There's nobody like her. She's incredibly, she's exquisite. And in the movie that she's made, she's made, you know, so many fantastic films. But how do I say this? Okay, it's like... You can read all the, of all the books that have been written about Elizabeth Taylor, all the articles, all the words that have been written about her. You will not find anything about where she went to college, or even where she went to high school. <laughs> You're going to get she, so much shit for this, right? I know it, but but this, this is the truth, because you know she did not go to high school. She had <laughs> she went to high school on the MGM lot at a place they called the Little Red Schoolhouse. Aww. So when you see her struggling to read the teleprompter. She's unfamiliar with words like LTD, like limited. She says, what's LTD mean? Where does that come from? <laughs> She's like Jennifer um, Lawrence. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, that, I, see, now you're going to uh, – thanks for sharing the, the hell with me because now you're going to catch hell for that too. But I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> she and, and Jennifer Lawrence are very much the same way. Is They're charming and they have grace and, and poise and they can think off the top of their head. But when it comes to actually being really – um, smart. I don't know that they have the the um, the IQ to really appreciate. Like, and I'll just uh, to finish up. I'll just say that when Elizabeth Taylor read the nominees for Best Picture, she giggled with glee when the Sting won, as if almost as if to me, like, oh, good, that's the one that I saw. That's the one I watched. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even know what these other movies are. Yeah. You know? yeah. And she said, oh, good, that's the one I wanted to win. She I actually says the, that. I hate it when the person reading the Best Picture gloats. I, know, I hate that terrible. so much. I like it so much better when they're horrified, like with Jack Nicholson reading out Crash. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> Not, you know, when they go, oh, you know, this is this is making me smile. It always uh-huh. irritates right. the hell out of me. But, you know, um, yeah, it's true. They were so, I mean, you can, you could not fight, you couldn't beat back the popularity of... Robert Redford and Paul Newman and the success of that movie. You just couldn't. It crackled, you know. And it's a clever little movie, but it's not by any means highbrow. It's a very middlebrow movie. Anybody of any age can understand it. That's why teenagers could like it and old old people could like it. The cons were were easy to understand. They were easier to understand than the cons in The Paper Moon. Right. Well, Paper Moon was so much better to me. And on every Paper Moon is a movie that that stands out. I mean, the best I can say about The Sting is that, like Craig kind of was saying, it is is it takes me back to a time in my childhood when those guys were big. You know, it, it isn't any better to me than the way we were. In fact, I think the way we were is actually a better movie than The Sting. Believe it or not, it's certainly more interesting. I know it's a it's a weird kooky love story between the two of them, but. At least there's politics in it, you know, at least politics and sex, politics and sex, politics and, and sex and women. You know, it's great yeah. to see a woman carry the movie. You know, that's a great right. thing. That, and that's another thing. The best actress, when you wonder about how, how did Glenda Jackson win the Oscar twice in three years? Um, it's because the, the, the slate of best actresses in 1973 was really not that strong when you look at the other nominees. Right. And also, she was sexy. She was the it girl then, I remember. I actually remember her as a kid being sexy, believe it or not. But, you know, it was weird that year because it was all about Linda Blair and Tatum O'Neill, and they were both in the supporting actress category. Right. Um, I don't know. That's a tough call between those two because they both gave such great performances. Mm-hmm. No matter what Vincent Canby says, they were both just fantastic. Not just in the what Linda Blair had to do on that bed, but 
um, her character before she gets to the bed, you know, who she is. That whole scene, and I think I said this a couple of Halloweens ago when we talked about Halloween movies, the scariest scene in that movie for me is when she's at the hospital and she's being poked and prodded by the doctors and those weird machines, and that's that's as intense as, as the, the split pea soup and all the other stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's uh-huh. acting. The hypodermic needles and the IVs and all that stuff. Because, you know, you really saw the needles going into the skin. That's something that people were not used to seeing in movies. Yeah, after all this time doing this, after 15 years in the Os- watching the Oscar race and, and looking at movies the way I do now, it's it's really hard for me to put my finger on what people mean when they say someone is good. You know, it's just it's such a weird thing. Like, does it mean I believed that person? Does it mean I liked that person? You know, everybody seems to agree on it. Like, everybody agreed that Jennifer Lawrence was great last year in that movie. Everybody agreed on that topic. But when you mm-hmm. boil it down... Almost everybody. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I can think of three people who disagreed with that. I mean, it's, in some cases, it's, it's you know obviously unequivocal. Meryl Streep's performances, for instance, Daniel Day-Lewis, Marlon Brando, um, Robert De Niro in some movies. You know, it's just, it can't be denied. You see what they're doing. You see that as a performance. But in some cases, it seems like they just get rewarded for being themselves. As much as I love Robert Redford in The Sting, you know, I think he's better in The Way We Were. Um, He's great in The Sting, but he's kind of phoning it in, you know. He's just kind Mm -hmm. of cute and wandering around. That's interesting, you know, to mention Jennifer Lawrence and Daniel Day-Lewis in the same breath because they were both (laughs) proclaimed winners around the same time. It was guaranteed that they were both going to win in November. As soon as as people had got a glimpse of the movies, people were talking about, well, we have our winners. And they're so different. One, you can understand where Daniel Day-Lewis is coming from because the the performance is is so um, uh, detailed. And, but Jennifer Lawrence is really is it for when the role is not that deep, and her performance doesn't really um, require her to do any to do any stretching either. But it was so much about that idea of like same as Ben Affleck. It was kind of like she became the it girl of the season. Like the back mm-hmm. then when we're reading this this stuff, they didn't they, actors would be embarrassed to campaign like this. It would be embarrassing to even act like you wanted the Oscar, let alone to go out and actively campaign campaign for it. Now it's so part it's, it's so accepted you have to do that if you want to win. And if you do it Weinstein style, you are everywhere. You're talking to everybody. You have cute bits worked into your campaign like Meryl Streep forgetting her shoe or on the way to the podium or Jennifer Lawrence acting dumb in front of the mic, you know, that kind of stuff is like it gets you press, it gets people talking about you, it keeps you in the forefront, makes people like you. It's very much like a political campaign, a very, very cleverly run political mm-hmm. campaign. But back in the 70s, back during this era, it didn't happen that way. It just didn't. You know, the- that's go ahead. No, I don't have anything more to say. <laughs> that's that's ex- that's what is extraordinary about Glenda Jackson winning twice um, within three years because in 1971 she didn't even show up and she made it. She vocally spoke out against the fact about how how little she re- her little the 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 uh, meager regard that she had for the Oscars and so they knew how she felt about the Oscars and yet they nominated her to the following year for Sunday Bloody Sunday and then two years later they actually gave her a second Oscar and she didn't show up to accept it either twice in a row she she won the Oscar and didn't show up either time. That's so weird. Isn't it? She's very Judy Dench-ish when you think about it, even though she was a sexy Judy Dench. Yeah. But she was, no, she was, um, you know, they had that, she's British, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they have that British thing. I don't know. It, you're right. It is weird. There's no explaining that one. Well, it's interesting, too, that uh, I, I was actually a little surprised to see Brando getting renominated after the fiasco that he had at the ceremony a couple of years before with The Godfather, the year before with The Godfather. Yeah, yeah it seems like they, it's almost like they like you to disdain them. Yeah, because they have so little regard for themselves. Well, you they... know, let's also remember that to be nominated, you really only have to have the support of maybe 20 or 25 percent of the Academy if they really, really like your performance. And there probably were 20 percent of the Academy who, who thought that was pretty cool. Well, a lot of them in this, in this book anyway, you know, the only person I could find who's saying anything good about the Oscars was John Huston, you know, who's, who's, mm. who made a quote as saying that he, you know, um, that he thought that the Oscars weren't bought and paid for and that they did do good, you know? Um, but, but the majority of people really thought that it was no way to find the best of anything. And that if you, if you didn't like the Oscars and if you didn't play that game, that meant you were a real actor, mm-hmm. you know, that's why a lot of them didn't go to these things. But nowadays everybody goes to everything. They even go to the critics choice, which is to me the lowest of the low. <laughs> They go to the Critics' Choice, and they all go, you know. I wish just one, the only one who didn't play that game was Joaquin Phoenix, you know, who got roped into it even at the end. But Because you have to, you know. People, it costs too much money to make movies. And the studio doesn't appreciate it if you don't campaign for the movie because that's part of the job, really. It's, it's become part of the job of if you accept the, the money that you're, the studio is going to give you to make the movie, they expect you to play the game all the way through right. to the end. Yeah, because the it's, Oscars... It's always been a business, but it seems like in the 70s there was this brief shining moment where it could be art, too. Mm-hmm. And now it's gone back to, to being a pure business again. And it's all, and it's all a part of... It's just, it's just like there's formulas in the making of the movies, there's formulas in the marketing and the awardsing of the movies. Yeah. And we still have filmmakers who are still out, who still rebel against that, and who don't play like like that, who don't play that way. Paul Thomas Anderson and Catherine Bigelow could be compared to Altman and Hal Ashby in the, mm-hmm. in as much as they don't really care about any of that. They'd act like they they seem to not even care if they ever win an Oscar. Well, I mean, this year was different for them because they were bankrolled by um, by uh, Megan Megan Ellison. Ellison, and so both of them were. So I think that they felt like they wanted to campaign because they wanted – I mean, I think they were torn. I think Paul Thomas Anderson was torn. He didn't want his movie to be an Oscar movie. But Catherine Bigelow absolutely did want to go that way because she knew that it would have helped um, that movie make money. As it turned out, it didn't even need the Oscars. It made plenty of money on its own. Um, and, in fact, I was listening to NPR, and they were talking about um, that f- foreign film beyond the hills which did was did so well at Cannes earlier in the year from um, romania and mm-hmm. it didn't get arrested at the oscars i don't think nobody even paid any attention to it but as i was listening to npr talk about the movie and give the history of the movie i was thinking this is so interesting they're talking about a movie outside the context of the oscar race as though it didn't even matter that it wasn't part of the oscar race as though it still mattered that this movie was here and i just thought you know what that's totally where it's at it's like there's the Oscar race and then there's films. Mm-hmm. And that can still be true. It doesn't have to be if it's not in the Oscar race, it's not valid. They were talking about Beyond the Hills as they would any of the nominated foreign films. And they talk about the Oscars as the Oscars, but they don't necessarily define quality. 
by this. Some of these, some of these stories that I've, that I've told in this episode about Hal Ashby, I, I I pulled from a book called Being Hal Ashby. It's a really great bi- biography of Hal Ashby. It's really, I think, it's the only book that's ever been written about him, and it really does a great job of of, of covering his uh, personality and his personal life, and and what kind of um, what personal characteristics he had that made him the way he was and that made his movies unique. But what's annoying about this book, as much as it is, as much as it revels and respects his, um, his um, maverick qualities, almost every, every time that they sum up about the movies that he ended up being able to make, they talk about how many Oscars it was nominated for. So it all comes down to that. Even in this book, even in a book that is so anti-establishment, it's, they still go, go back to the Oscars. Because they they, they want you, you to realize that it gives you a it gives you that that particular film or filmmaker's position within the industry. How well the industry liked that person, how successful mm-hmm. they were among their peers. You know, really, that's all you can figure that the Oscars are good for. That's what they show. They show my peers really liked me. I was listening to Debbie Reynolds on NPR be interviewed. She was so funny. She was talking about some upcoming movie that she's she's playing a part in, and I was thinking, you know, um, she's talking about it like she hasn't been with all of these people for decades and decades. You know, they all know her. So for her not to get a nomination by them is such a rejection of her. I'm not saying she will or won't be nominated or that she'll even be in the running, but she must know that after these many decades that an Oscar nomination means only that, that they liked her that moment, that they're approving of her. You know, it's such a strange thing. It really is. It's a bizarre. I just really quickly, as we're running out of time, I wanted to read you guys. Um, Damien Bona and Mason Wiley, they always do the list of th- the films and um, certain songs or whatever that weren't nominated but were eligible. So that year, here are the songs that were nominated. The Way We Were, which won. A Touch of Class. <laughs> God, they really liked that movie. Live and Let Die, Robin Hood, and Cinderella Liberty. And here are the songs that were eligible but weren't nominated. The Harder They Come, Jimmy Cliff, Knocking on Heaven's Door, Bob Dylan, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, um, Bob Dylan. And you can get it if you really want it, Jimmy Cliff, The Harder They Come. So there wow. you go. Wow. Those iconic songs totally ignored by the Academy. All right, you guys. Well, I better hang up so I can try and get this thing on online tonight if I can, if I can sit here and, and try to edit it down. Okay, great. Um, I thought I was going to be really foggy-headed tonight because I'm still kind of burnt out from the weekend, but I I, I drank a lot of coffee. (laughs) You were not. You were very clear-headed, unlike (laughs) me. I was just in a a haze and a daze, but um, great All right, it's fun. It's been really fun, as always. All right, guys, have a good night. Okay, you too. You've been listening to episode 24 of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com and Ryan Adams and Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. You can follow our podcast on Twitter at Oscar Podcast or um, you can follow me on Twitter at awardsdaily, Ryan at filmmystic1m and Craig at livinginsinema. And the bumper music today was Loner Phase by Cold War Kids and The Harder They Come by Jimmy Cliff. Thanks for listening.